Chapter 4 of The Octave of Claudius. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Aaron Rivera. The Octave of Claudius by Barry Payne. Chapter 4. Yes, said Henry Burnage to himself. I must marry Angela. He paced up and down the soft carpet, thinking about it. He was alone in his well-ordered chambers, smoking a cigarette that was not to be bought in shops. It was a good cigarette, but its flavor was as nothing to the fact that it was not to be bought in shops. It seemed to fill the room with that atmosphere of uniqueness, distinction, speciality that Henry Burnage believed that he loved. He had arrived slowly at his resolution. He rarely hurried important things. He liked to act correctly. And though he would say a passably brilliant thing about the commercial spirit and the middle classes, he very much liked to get on in the world. He had been considering marriage with Angela Witcherly, as one might consider anonymous journalism, in a critical spirit, weighing the arguments for and against. That was the way he had begun, at least. Angela's mother was barely possible. She was too large, too obvious, too good-tempered and she gave too much publicity to that side of her which would have been reserved for the specialist in dyspepsia. Her circle included too generously. Well, once married, Henry Burnage felt that Mrs. Witcherly could be deleted altogether. Then there was her father, a midly commercial person whose Sunday night anxiety, unless he had one of those headaches, seemed to be first to find the background, and then to sit in it. He would not need to be deleted. He would delete himself. He would probably do something for Angela. The commerce was only mildly successful, but Angela was the only unmarried child. It was almost certain there would be something for her. Besides, Henry Burnage's own father had made him a very liberal offer, if he got married. The elder Burnage did not believe that young men kept straight unless they married. Besides, he wanted to see a grandchild. Then there was Angela to be considered. Just here, the merely critical consideration became touched by emotion. The material side of Henry Burnage was in love with Angela. He had come under her charm. Now, this charm was not peculiar to Angela. Many other girls have it, and it is more easily described in its results. Angela made the men that she met imagine her secrets. She inspired fascinating reverie. Burnage, with all his business qualities, was much given to fascinating reveries. A catalog's justice would have been unjust to her looks, for her features were slightly irregular. The ebb and flow of color on her dusky cheeks, or a chance movement of her long eyelashes, or the curve of her figure in some chance position that she had taken, would balk dispassionate criticism. She had a store of trifles to throw in the scale against classical beauty, and apparently outweigh it. She had seemed at one time to Burnage to be a flirt but now he was inclined to think that she had grown serious-hearted and was being hurt by it. He wondered if she cried sometimes at night, just before she went to sleep, because of her thoughts. That would be terrible. She would tell him about it, just give him her warm little hands to hold, cast her eyes down, and make shy confidences. His vanity, caught by his imagination, soared grandly upwards like thistle-down riding in the wind. He began to picture things, her rapt eyes seemed to look at him, and her low voice to tell him how good he was. He seemed to hear music. The wedding march took its memorable downward sweep, curled over the keynote, and broke at his feet. It moved upwards again. 
changed to a slow, straining waltz that beat its great wings regularly. Upwards into the rare field atmosphere of the passionate lover where the whole world stopped and one kiss continued. He had arrived slowly at his resolution, beginning with criticism and ending in ecstasy, just at the last warming the cold ambition by the fires of love, or the nearest that he could get to love. He was glad that the resolution was taken, and it had been hovering in his mind for some time. He felt a kind of importance and consequence of it. He seemed to himself to be embarking on a fresh epoch in his existence. He dined at his club and dined well. Thoughts of the love-touched future, black coffee, a small glass of kirsch, and another of the cigarettes that could only be obtained by favor occupied him for the next two minutes. Then he proceeded to write two letters. His first letter was to his father, and Henry Burnage's letters to his father were exceedingly unlike his letters to anybody else. The elder Burnage had started life with a small shop, and although he had long ago retired from his business and he had never been able to feel properly ashamed of it, and he never even said a passably brilliant thing about the commercial spirit and the middle classes, this alone made him different from the kind of man that his son was. The father was somewhat puritanical and quite uncultured. Here again, the son was different. In a more humorous moment, the father would sometimes say, Have you been buying any aesthetic things lately, Henry? What was to be done with such a man? A man who could never succeed in forgetting the back numbers of Punch. A man who was quite crude and point-blank. A man who could never be convinced that he misunderstood another man's point of view, and yet always did misunderstand it. Henry could only sigh drearily, and try to read the essays of Matthew Arnold without noticing that their severous thoughts went straight through his own father, happily ignorant of the assault and quite contented. Just as a mean motive and a more generous motive had made Henry decide to marry Angela, a mixture of motives influenced him in the treatment of his father. He was not without filial affection, but he also wondered occasionally in what proportion his father would, in his last will and testament, divide his property between him and his very plain and unattractive sister. He tried to write his father the kind of letter that his father would like, but he spent as little time as possible on the composition of it, knowing that his father was not critical in such things. Tonight, his letter ran as follows. My dear father, you may be assured that your last letter, stating that you have had no return of the sciatica, gave me great pleasure. I was delighted to hear that you managed to get as far from our house to the cemetery. You must be careful not to overdo it, but I suppose you would not walk that distance without permission from the doctor. Certainly, the embrocation which he prescribed seems to have done wonders. So you have got the main drainage at last and are compelled to connect with it. I always said that it would come and after the initial expenses you would probably find the arrangement much more satisfactory. I am sorry that the new Vicar is not to your liking. His adoption of the eastward position and other ritualistic practices in face of so many protests seems to me very silly. It is, as you say, a great pity that the living should be in the gifts of Sir Constantine Sandel, a man who has belonged at times to almost every conceivable religious sect. By the way, I am almost certain that I saw Claudius Sandel in the Fulham Road about a month ago, just after I sent you my last letter. It was getting dark, and I cannot be positive, 
But if I am right, he has very much come down in the world. The man I saw was dressed in the seediest clothes, no stick or gloves, smoking a clay pipe and peering into the window of a small eating house. As I had two other men with me, I was naturally not anxious to claim the acquaintance of, apparently, a half-starved tramp. So I hurried on to avoid the recognition. Otherwise, I should have been glad to have lent him a few shillings for the sake of old times together at Cambridge. Of course, we do not know what the quarrel was between Sir Constantine and Claudius. You think that Sir Constantine was in the wrong. He may have been. At the same time, I do not think that a father, however hot-tempered and however eccentric, entirely breaks with his own son for nothing. Why was it that Claudius, who is quite, by the way, being my friend at Trinity, never told me one word of the reason for the quarrel, and parried my questions on the subject? Why is it that, although he has been in London and knew that he could get my address at the temple, he has never been to see me and has never sent me his own address? It must mean that he is ashamed of something. It is strange that he, who was always thought so wonderful, should have been compelled to leave Cambridge without taking a degree, and should then have gone completely under, while I, who was nobody in particular, took a second in my tripos, and am already beginning to get on at the bar. By the way, is that curious woman, Miss Combe, still at Sir Constantine's? In conclusion, I have something important to say. I feel that you are right, and I accept your very generous offer. You will not be surprised to hear that the lady whom I intend to marry is Angela Witcherly, of whom I have often spoken to you. I am now only waiting my opportunity to make a formal proposal, and I think I may say, without conceit, that I know what her answer will be. Before I do so, I shall be glad to hear from you if you think the alliance suitable. Your affectionate son, Henry Burnage. His next letter was to Luke Monsent, and to him Henry Burnage employed a sort of sham literary style with a good deal of affection, short paragraphs, and capital letters in it. Dear Luke, action and reaction make me distrust all. The swing of the pendulum in one direction seems to take a man so far. It also returns as far. There is no stability. How we clung to the expression of culture through furniture, environment. Nay, I still cling to it. Yet always I shift my ground from time to time. Even now it is better to employ aniline dyes with a duchess than to like the art flowerpot that has penetrated Bloomsbury. Stability. If you knew, if you could only know how long I get to it. Now comes some hope at last. You ask what? A woman's eyes that are more beautiful because they are now grown serious. On my part, nights in which I do not sleep, but think entrancingly. Is there not hope of stability there? The bourgeois marry to perpetuate their indifferent species, and I to find anchorage for my soul in calm waters. If so, then, at last, stability. Of other news, nothing. Save that I hear that our friend, Cloudy Sandell, is now definitely gone under, and you thought him very great. Ah, well... It will teach you to distrust. Of your own life, what? Right soon. Yours in these bonds of flesh, Henry Burnage. He did not write in this style to his father, because his father was not sympathetic, would not have understood, and would certainly have called him an ass. 
but Henry Burnage fancied the style, and probably would have believed that his letter to Luke was rather good. But in one point he was mistaken. Claudius was not yet definitely gone under. In fact, not very long after this date, Dr. Gabriel Lamb wrote a letter to his bankers, asking them to place £8,000 to the credit of Mr. Claudius Sandell, of whom's signature he disclosed examples, during a period of eight consecutive days to commence on the following Saturday morning. The circumstances which led to this order may now be recorded. End of chapter 4